Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Yusuf Ahmed Rimawi, Nasser Mashni and Robert Martin. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Australia's only radio pro- program that is totally dedicated to the Palestinian cause in English language. I would like to welcome our listeners on the AM dial and those who will join us later on 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. Our guest this episode is Michael Sheikh. Michael has worked for a peaceful solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict since 2003 when he was the media coordinator for International Solidarity Movement in Occupied Palestinian Territories. He was one of the founders of International Free Gaza Campaign to break Israel's maritime blockade of the Gaza Strip and worked as a public advocate for Australians for Palestine from 2007 to 2010. He is a contributor to three books on the role of non-violent direct action in the struggle for Palestinian independence and has commented on Israeli-Palestinian affairs for The Age, The Australian, The Canberra Times, ABC Radio National and SBS Television and Radio. Michael is going to talk to us about his journey for Palestine and more so for this. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Yusuf, and good morning, Michael. Good morning. Um, We have um, a guest, a friend, a commentator today. I'm very pleased and excited to be speaking to uh, Michael Sheikh. And I also wanted to say that Michael Sheikh, I would call a very, very good friend of mine. Michael is someone that I go to for information about Palestine and politics. He has a very, very good knowledge of it all. Sometimes he doubts himself with his knowledge, but he bamboozles me when he comes up with it. So I'm absolutely honoured to have you here, Michael. And I really mean that. Thank you for taking the time to come and see us. Thank you. I can bamboozle you any time. We'll start, uh, Michael, uh, with... uh, um, how you came to be involved with Palestine. Uh, tell us uh, something about yourself for, for the listeners who uh, don't know you and um, how you came to be involved with the Palestinian issue in general. And, and if you miss anything out, I'm going to correct you because I know that you're very, very humble. Very humble. So, you, so don't, don't, don't miss anything because we know. We know. We're watching. Okay. All yours. I'll give you the short version. <laughs> well, we've only got half an hour, so, you know. <laughs> No, look, I mean, I got involved when I was backpacking around the Middle East um, during the Second Intifada, and I wasn't really politically active, but I met a few people who were doing human rights work in the occupied territories. 
I went along to see what it was like. I was um, a bit <coughs> upset about what I saw. So I volunteered to become part of the international solidarity just, movement. Just on that, what was it that you saw particularly that made the change you? What was it? I saw it when they were bombing Bethlehem um, and Yasser Arafat's compound there. I saw the, the checkpoints. I saw the um, villagers under curfew. I saw the um, settlement settlers attacking Palestinians while they tried to harvest their olives. It's very confronting to see unarmed civilians being brutalized by heavily armed Israelis um, but when you actually see it up close, when you actually see a house demolition and you un- and you say, well, why did they demolish the house? Because they wanted the land for a neighbouring settlement yeah. and, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I've, I've witnessed too and it moves you. So fr- from there you joined ISM? Yes, I volunteered to become part of the international solidarity movement <clears throat> because during the Intifada the Palestinians did try to non-violently mobilise against the occupation, but they were met with devastating amounts of lethal force. I mean, hundreds were killed. So they said, look, if you want to help, we need people from, you know, Western countries whose lives are frankly worth more than Palestinian lives and that the Israelis can't just shoot with impunity to help us in this respect. So a group of um, Americans and Europeans and Canadians and what have you, they came over and they helped when the Church of Nativity was besieged by the Israelis. It was the internationals who helped get food in to the Palestinians who were taking refuge there. When Yasser Arafat's compound was besieged by the Israelis, it was the international solidarity movement that helped. So I joined as a media coordinator, um, which I enjoyed doing, Uh, tried to get news out about what was happening um, to the foreigners, Um, while they were helping the Palestinians, and I was there for quite some time. And um, it it was a very eye-opening experience. So eventually I got arrested and put in jail and deported. And I thought, well, when I get back to Australia, I'm going to see what I can do within my own community to um, help the Palestinians, you know, help get the story out about what's really going on in in Israel and Palestine. What were you arrested for, Michael? Um, technically, I was a threat to Israel's security. Um, uh, you, you look pretty mean. <laughs> well, I, I never got to find out. What, I mean, I know I didn't break any laws while I was there. Um, all I did was my job. But they were shutting down the international solidarity movement there. They'd killed two other activists, and that had made headline news around the world. So they decided what they were going to do um, was um, arrest the long-term activists the people who had the you know the the knowledge about how to navigate checkpoints about who to phone when you get in trouble and all that and that's how they were going to break the organization so one by one they caught us and deported us from the country now they didn't have any evidence on me but they presented a secret trial a file at my trial as to why I was a threat to Israel's security, the judge had held it and I was deported. On that and uh, you, you mentioned um, killing two solidarity activists. Uh, Rachel Corey was? Yes. yes she I, was believe, the first. I believe you and Rachel had met. Yes, yes. Well, I was, uh, we did our training together. I stayed back at the office in Beit Zahor and she was in the Gaza Strip. Mm. And at that time, along the border with um, Egypt, Israel was creating a sterile <coughs> zone. And they were just demolishing hundreds of Palestinian houses. So just what, what's a sterile zone? 
um, a, a, a place where they can just uh, there's nothing um, that will interrupt their field of fire. Um, so essentially, they were just flashing this whole whole neighbourhood. Um, so mums and dads, kids' homes were getting demolished and pushed out the way, so we can actually fire deeper into Gaza. Yep, yep, and stop the tunnels and, and, and things like that. And you know, these were ordinary people's houses. Uh, so the peace activists there were trying to stop them. And sometimes they were successful and sometimes they weren't. And eventually the Israelis got more and more aggressive until they um, uh, ran over and killed this American peace activist, Rachel Corey. And um, that made headline news for a couple of days. Because she was an American, not yeah, a Palestinian. Yeah, because she was a matter. white American and um, unarmed. And they couldn't kind of say, well, we thought she was um, going to shoot us or anything like so that. This goes back to what you were saying, that uh, we need the foreigners here because their lives are greater than the Palestinians and, you know, you'll be protected. But yet she wasn't protected in the end. Yes, but even so, I mean, there were a lot of Palestinians killed that day. They never made the news. No. So that's what I mean, you know, um, a Western life is worth much more than an Arab yeah. life and there's a lot and more explaining to do. Uh, it's also that... You know, if they kill a Palestinian, they'll say, well, he was carrying a gun. And nobody will question that um, because, you know, if it's a Palestinian's word against an Israeli's word, they'll never believe the Arab's word. Yeah, That's just the way the world works. Um, whereas it's a, an American, a white American or an Australian, that carries more weight, essentially. That's so sad yeah. and, and wrong. Then, and then uh, um, you were deported. Mm-hmm. You came to Australia with this momentum to continue your mm. work for Palestine from within. What happened? Uh, well, luckily there was a great little group in Canberra, which is my hometown, called Australians for Justice and Peace in Palestine, and I immediately joined that. And we did a lot of great stuff just at a volunteer level. Mm. Then a few years later I was asked to come to Melbourne to work full-time for Australians for Palestine, and that was a fantastic experience. Mm. That's uh, where I came to know you. Yes, exactly. You, you gave a presentation at Deakin University where I used to work I think ah, in 2007. Yes. And that was a very good presentation. Right. I think it was a debate. Yeah, debate. I, th- I think I was yeah. there. Yes. We didn't cross paths at that stage, but I, did, I went too. Yeah, I was yeah. undercover. Yeah, I know. You always yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, I, ha- I held my walking crutch with the left hand. <laughs> which so is, it threw which me is, off. Which is, yeah, yeah. It threw me off. It's the opposite. I didn't realize it. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, go on. He was telling me about your role in, in, in Australians for Palestine. Yeah, no, that was a great experience. And we did a lot of good stuff for, for three years. And then I decided to take a break for a while. And then um, in 2013, I started working part-time for APAN, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, which has kind of taken over as the main advocacy organisation. You're very Australia, good. Palestine. Great people. Yeah. And, and they do a lot of good work too. So the, it's very encouraging to see not only how many wonderful Palestinian activists they are in Australia, but how many people like Rob are that there are who understand what the Palestinian struggle is all about and want to help in their own way and, mm. and to show solidarity, to see how the movement's grown and been matured and particularly to see how second and gener- third generation young Palestinians are coming up and finding their own voice as Australian Palestinians to tell their own story. And I, 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 that didn't used to happen 10 years ago. Palestinians would tell you, actually, I knew several who claimed to be Jordanian or Lebanese mm. because they were told, look, don't cause trouble. Um, you know, you're in a free country now. People will think you're terrorists. They no longer do that now. Now they're mm. very proud to call themselves Palestinians because they understand 
um, the role that Palestine plays in the international struggle against racism. Uh, now, I just want to say something. Sorry, Yusuf, I could see you about to ask a question. I want our listeners just to have a think and wonder if they've heard of the flotilla. I think a lot of people that are involved with the, you know, breaking the siege in Gaza the are pretty familiar with, with the boats and the flotilla. And I was just wondering, Yusuf, do, do you know who came up or was one of the people that came up with this? Have you any idea? Well, I know who the person was behind it. Let's just ask Michael and see if he has any. Michael, <laughs> have you any idea who, who may have come up with this wonderful idea that, you know, has... I'll, I'll yeah. spare you the answer. It's Michael. Okay. Oh, well, well and, and, and the reason I ask like this is because Michael is very, you know, as we said before, humble. And so every time I introduce him to someone, I basically introduce him as the flotilla. So <laughs> t- tell us a bit about that. The person too. behind the flotilla. Okay. Well, look, when you're in jail, in an Israeli jail for a week, and I'm not saying it was like Midnight Express or anything, you've got a lot of time to think. Hmm. So I thought, well, what can we do when we get out? Because we'll never be able to get back into Palestine by going through the usual route. But Gaza was started being under siege in 2006, as soon as Hamas won the election. Um, they tightened the siege in 2007. And I thought that one thing that foreigners could do was to be to draw attention to the blockade, to the hidden suffering that nobody was talking about in Gaza. And one day we could just charter a couple of boats, fill them full of medical supplies and um, things that people needed in Gaza but weren't being let through, and we just sail up. And then we put Israel in a lose-lose situation. If they let us through, the blockade is broken. If they don't, then they show to the world that they're actually punishing civilians um, as part of their their blockade. So that was the original idea. So yes, I came cell. up with this. This is from the cell. They locked you up, and you came <laughs> up with this. Well, that was the idea. But remember, there were a lot of people who did a lot more work to make it happen than me. I mean, it's easy to come up with a great idea, but actually, you, you know, arranging to it. get the boats. That's um, huge. It's money. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah, whole lot of yeah. things. I mean, fundraising. Yeah. Tens of thousands of dollars to charter a couple of fishing boats. And then from there it grew. The first time we got straight through because the Israelis were smart enough to realize that they didn't want to give us all this free publicity by stopping us on the high mm. seas from getting into not Israel but the occupied territories. Um, then when Netanyahu got in, they became a lot more stupid um, and they did the worst possible thing. They not only stopped us but they boarded it, shot nine people, yeah created a diplomatic crisis with Turkey, which was their main ally in the Middle East at that time, and the relation still hasn't recovered, and also shone a spotlight on, on what they were doing. Mm. But, I mean, it was a tragedy that people had to die, um, but everybody on that flotilla knew that they were taking a risk well, because, I mean, these are, you know, vicious people. Michael, uh, we are going to take a quick break, and when we return... We'll listen to your uh, reflections on uh, current affairs. So stay with us. Listening to Palestine, remembered on 855 AM, from the Syrian folklore by Lina Shamamian. Um, Michael, before the break, 
you mentioned the flotilla and the attempts to break the blockade on Gaza. It's been 11 years, and uh, during this 11 year, uh, the split, political split between West Bank and Gaza, the political split, split within the Palestinian political spectrum, Fatah and Hamas, um, and the polarization. But uh, recently we are witnessing um, a bit of um, uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Are you optimistic about the reconciliation uh, talks between uh, Hamas and Fatah, supported by Egypt this time? Personally, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm hopeful. Hmm. Um, I don't think the, the split for all that's been made of it represents any deep split within Palestinian society. There is no really deep split between Palestinian secularists and Islamists. I think that's a beat up. Hmm. Um, I think it's mainly been manipulated by outside forces. All Palestinians want a reconciliation and a united front presented to Israel and the rest of the world on this issue. The trouble is, even if Abbas is sincere in his determination to heal the split, he's going to come under tremendous pressure from Israel and the United States to walk away from reconciliation. And that's been an ongoing problem. They were the ones who first fermented the split back in 2007, um, which actually precipitated the splitting of, of Gaza from the rest of the Palestinian Authority. Can, can I just ask, why why does Israel have an issue with them being unified like that? Just for the people who don't understand it, why will they be putting pressure? Well, you see, Israel doesn't want to have um, a, a, an accord with the Palestinians. So if they can say, look, how can we deal with Abbas? He doesn't even represent the Palestinians. Then that's a get-out-of-jail-free card. So it's in their interest to kind of like wedged the two against each other and focus on the split. And then he can just say, look, Abbas can't can't even control Gaza. How can I make peace with him? It's exactly what they said uh, in the the last 2014 uh, uh, unity government. That's what they want. Netanyahu said uh, the day before unity government that Abbas doesn't represent all Palestinians. And the day after unity government, that Abbas is siding with the terrorists. Exactly. So they start, they How can we deal with How Abbas? Can, yeah, he so, supports terrorists. He mm. wants to wipe us out. And that's the kind of like mm. um, uh, pressure he's under. And um, so that's why... But from here, I have to say that Abbas has shown uh, determination not to bow to pressure when it comes to internal politics. Yeah. With a, with a uh, internal issues like the call from Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Egypt, and Jordan last year to reinstate Dahlan within Fatah before the convention yep. of November, that didn't lead anywhere. And now with the pressure to uh, basically uh, break the, uh, the unity government with Hamas, I think it will lead nowhere. Mm, I hope so. You see, like I said, there's not a split within the Palestinian society as such, but there is a real political split over tactics between Hamas and Fatah. Certainly. Hamas has always said, look, Israel will never voluntarily withdraw from the occupied territories, and you're dreaming if you think that America and the international community are going to Mm. make it withdraw as part of a peace process. Fatah have always said, look, we cannot possibly win in a military struggle against Israel. The peace process is all we've got. And in a way, they were both right. I was just going to say, there's points to both, both, isn't there? Yeah, there well, are the points. 
What they've realized is they've both failed. There is yeah. no military solution because Israel has overwhelming power and they use yeah. Palestinian resistance to distract from the structural violence of the yeah. occupation, the apartheid systems they've imposed yeah. upon them. But also the idea, I think even, you know, Fatah and the Palestinian Authority realize that they're the, the, the idea that one day the international community would make Israel withdraw from the occupied territories or persuade them to w- w- was a fantasy, and, and that's not going to happen. So what mm. that means is essentially that in a way Likud has achieved its vision of creating a single apartheid state between the Mediterranean and Jordan, and that's going to be there for a long time. And if the Palestinians are going to be in this for the long haul, they're going to have to reunify against a common program of resistance. And they're both going to have to admit that they were both were right and they were both wrong yeah. and find a way forward here. Because the situation right now, not only in Gaza, which is catastrophic, but even in the West Bank, I mean, there was a very good program on ABC2 um, called Extreme World with Ross Kemp. And he went to the West Bank and, you know, there's a terrible problem with synthetic marijuana over there. Mm. And, you know, the Palestinians have never really had a problem with that kind of delinquency. But, you know, if you brutalize a society that much, if you destroy their leadership, if you take away their economic prospects and um, hope for a future, then it happens in every colonial conflict eventually the youth kind of like turn to that kind of level mm. of delinquency. Of and it's an cool. orchestrated uh, issue because in, in East Jerusalem areas where, let's say, PA has limited control, if any, the youth uh, are, are suffering from drug issues more than they do in West Bank, which means that Israel is feeding into into that market with more and turning blind eye towards drug dealers and smugglers uh, to reach that end. Exactly. I have no doubt in my mind that exactly. they were actually helping the drugs get in. Yeah, yeah. I have no doubt. Uh, I mean, that's what you do. Yeah. It's an orchestrated that's, issue. Yeah. And then, you look, know. look it's, it's been, it happened in this country. It's been happening around the world since Christopher Columbus. It's the oldest trick in the book. And the Palestinian society is resilient, but um, it is beginning to break down um, b- because of this <coughs> ongoing brutality and mm. structural violence. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, like 40% of Palestinian men in the West Bank have been inside Israeli jails. 90% of them are, are brutalized when they're there. Mm. Can you imagine what generation after generation trauma. that kind of trauma does mm. to a society? Can't imagine. So, yeah, I, and I think now the Palestinians realize that there is no magic bullet that's going to end the occupation. That's this. So what do they do? That, 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 well, they've got to do what every other colonial society does. They've got to realize that the international community is not going to save them. It's up to themselves to build up their own internal solidarity, but also their solidarity with other oppressed groups. Like, you know, one of the most amazing things that happened this year was Michael Bennett, the the great American footballer. He was going to go on a, um, a tour of Israel, first class by the Israel lobby, and he refused. He said, I will not be a goodwill ambassador. I'm not going to be used. He quoted Muhammad Ali, who was a great friend of the Palestinians, and also um, I think Juan Carlos, who was one of the athletes who made the Black Power salute at the Mexico Olympics in 1968. And he said, injustice, you're either all the way in or you're all the way out, and I'm in. And that kind of like solidarity between oppressed groups, that Mm. solidarity between Black Lives Matter and the Palestine Solidarity mm. Movement is very important because they both realized there was a time when um, 
African-Americans thought, well, now we've got a black president, we didn't need to worry about racism anymore. Mm. Well, Look what happened eight years later. Well, not eight, eight years later. Look what happened at during, Trayvon Martin mm. and um, all the other people who are murdered on cell phone, you know, on camera by police, and yeah, nothing happened and to nothing the murders and, and stuff like that. So they they also know that you know um, these racism is part of the West deep story, and it won't go away quickly. The Palestinians realize that. The African Americans realize that. Aboriginal Australians realise that as well. And it, I think it's important for those of us who um, are concerned about racism here to be concerned about racism everywhere because our enemies are the same. Mm. You know, Donald mm. Trump doesn't really discriminate between Puerto Ricans, Palestinians, Mexicans and Palestinians. And they're, other they're all, groups. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Michael, you mentioned the solidarity between Palestinians and other oppressed groups, and there is a shift uh, to our favor in the last decade or two decades, especially with the rise of social media and the people these days can communicate horizontally easier and more efficiently more than uh, ever. In the other paradigm, which is uh, Palestine has been losing the arena, the arena in its, I would say, the official, the governmental type of uh, support that we used to get from uh, from Arab countries. Now Arab countries are considering normalization without a solution with the Palestinians. Now we've seen uh, Israeli breakthroughs in China, in South America, in India. And this used to be, and in Africa, this used to be unconditional supporter of the Palestinian rights. Mm. So how do you see the balance between these two paradigms? We're losing here, we're winning here. Yeah, well, I mean, there used to be a thing called third world solidarity. And that was really big during the decolonization period Mm. after World War II. Mm. I think that kind of broke down with the end of the Cold War. Mm. And it's been replaced more and more with identity politics. So instead of, you know, the Afro-American countries like India, China, the African states, you know, the Arab states saying, well, you know, we've all been victims of the same system. Therefore, this is why we stand up for South Africa and Palestine and all the other oppressed groups. That's been breaking down. It's been defeated by outside forces and by um, a resurgent groups like Hindu nationalism, mm. um, Christian fundamentalism in Africa, and, you know, the um, collapse of the Arab Spring and, um, you know, the takeover of, you know, many Arab countries by these kind of pro-American strongmen. And, and that's been a real defeat um, for the developing world and for the Palestinians in general. But I think, you know, the people um, um, within these countries realize that their press is the same. They realize that, you know, when Sisi and Netanyahu meet and they get on really well, that's not a coincidence. So at the mm. grassroots, yes. you know, as people grow disillusioned with their governments, they can also relate to the Palestinians more. So... Yeah. That is hopeful that, you know, mm. people are mobilizing, you know, more and more. But, I mean, you know, the, the proliferation of extreme right groups around the world it is scary, not only in Europe, but in India, the Philippines, Russia, um, yeah, Africa, and things like that. And there's been a real rollback recently. So w- we'll see. We'll see. But people are resisting more, and that's hopeful. 
We're going to have to leave it here with this statement, Michael. And before the end of the show, I would like to say a belated uh, birthday wishes to Miss Jean Sheikh, Michael's mother, and our lovely listener um, who celebrated her birthday two weeks ago. I hope you had a wonderful birthday and I wish you a life filled with joy and happiness. Michael, uh, thank you so much for coming to the show and we will be looking forward to speaking to you in future episodes. Thanks for being with us. It's been a real honor. Thank you. Goodio. With this, uh, we've come to the end of this week's episode of Palestine Remembered. And our guest this episode, Michael Sheikh, an Australian writer, commentator and advocate for Palestine. Thanks for being in, uh, for tuning in this week. And remember to listen same time next week, Saturday, 9.30 in the morning. Until then, have a great time and salam. Mm-hmm.